for legitimate political discourse without the bear spray. Tune in and speak out. KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Tavis Smiley. Glad to have you with us uh, on KBLA Talk 1580. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580. 1-800-920-1580. We thank once again uh, Attorney George Fathery III for giving us that exclusive conversation about these new developments in the Bruce's Beach case. So now you've heard from the attorney for the family. Now let's talk to a brilliant economist about what the family has decided to do. Uh, pleased to have back on this program our regular contributor, noted economist, celebrated public intellectual, Cal State L.A. Dean, Dr. Julianne Malvo, now with her reflections uh, on the exclusive conversation we just had with the Bruce family attorney. First of all, Dr. Malvo, Happy New Year. How are you today? Happy New Year to you as well. I'm good. Good, good, good. Good to hear your voice and good to have you back on. So let me just jump right in and make the most of our time in these few minutes that we have before you have to hop on a plane to get back to L.A. and get back to Cal State. So I'm glad I caught you on the road. Uh, and thanks for taking these uh, 25 minutes to, to talk to us. Um, and I, and I want to frame this in, in, in two ways, if I can, with you specifically. One, a conversation about economics. Uh, and, and the second piece, a conversation about reparations and what um, we all celebrated vis-a-vis this case as the quintessential example of how reparations ought to work, and now we learn that they've decided to, after six months of owning the land, uh, this just happened literally in June of uh, 2022, six months later they've decided to sell it uh, to uh, the county uh, for uh, about $20 million, we heard from from George Fowler III a moment ago. So let me just start with um, a broad question, and then we'll narrow this, uh, about how how you have watched, how you've witnessed, and what your takeaways have been from this Bruce's Beaches Bruce's Beach case as it has unfolded. Well, I was really delighted. I think we all were not only the reparations movement, black people in general delighted when the land was returned to them, land valued at seventy five million dollars. Uh, and th- because Bruce's Beach is not just about Bruce's Beach, this has been a regular, basically taking a black people's land all over the country. We can talk about Tulsa. We could look at there's some. The case of Anthony uh, Crawford in South Carolina, where the brother had so much uh, land, uh, the white folks decided they just go take it. Mm-hmm. Uh, a white woman actually quoted the newspaper and said he was a wealthy Negro and insolent. So the insolent black man went to the grocery store to sell some cotton seed, and a white man was offered five cents more a pound. He said he'd rather throw his seed in the damn river than to uh, sell it for a discounted price. He was arrested for cursing at a white man. Mm-hmm. Uh, that brother was so arrogant, Tavis. I love his story. They arrested him. He reached in his pocket. He said, "What's what's the uh, fine?" They said, fifteen dollars." He gave it to him. <laughs> we're talking about nineteen. <laughs> we're talking about nineteen twenty. <laughs> so yeah, but he did not get off that land. They lynched him. They left his body hanging. And significantly, it was four hundred and twenty-five acres of quote good cotton land. Mm-hmm. The two white men who envied him the most became the executors of his estate and took his land. Mm. So, I mean, that, that's a case. Bruce's Beast is a case. They're all kind of one case, one case. So we all who followed this land expropriation, which has happened all over the country, rejoice that the Bruce family got the beach back. Mm. I mean, it was, a, it was an exciting moment. So I understand, I heard the last part of your interview with the the attorney, and I hear where, where he's coming from, I would say this this one thing. You know, we live in a predatory capitalist society. Mm-hmm. And because we live in a predatory capitalist society, money talks. The error in my mind, and I'm not dissing the brother, is that the city had the right to buy it back for no more than $20 million. 
Well, if it's valued at $75 million, how do you end up setting so a price that's yeah. a third of what it's actually worth? So, so let me cut in. I'm glad you said that. You, you caught the end of the conversation, and that's why I wanted George Fowler the third to come in so we could clarify this. So he says that the $20 million value is the value of the land. And what he explained was that it, he doesn't know where that $70 million figure came from. He said he suspects it comes from the fact that when people were trying to figure out the value of the land, they didn't know exactly the parcels, the specific parcels which were owned uh, owned uh, presently until they sell it uh, uh, by the Bruce family. So there are two parcels of land. And without going into all the details, those who were listening heard it. And if you didn't hear it, check out the podcast, uh, which we posted later tonight, later today, I should say, probably in a few minutes. But uh, he said that the parcels, the two parcels that they specifically own, obviously as brilliant attorneys at Sidley Austin, they did have the land appraised. So the parcel that they do own is in fact valued at about 20 million that's where that price came from so he uh disabused us of this notion this morning that there's anything worth 70 75 million dollars so that's that so I, I hear your point but i just wanted to, you didn't catch that part of the conversation so you know i just wanted to clarify that so the 20 million dollar figure once again is the value of the land but you raise another issue though that that i, I want to still uh, allow you to to expound upon and that is and i put this to the attorney uh george father the third he gave his answer and you know we accept his answer as their family attorney but the issue you put your finger on is one i raise is the land that black people have so little land these days look at what happened to black farmers the story you just told these stories are abundant in our history where land and as we said earlier they ain't making no more land right land is taken from us or we end up you know basically selling it or giving it away uh, the same thing happened in radio. I mean, here we are at this black-owned, black-operated station, only four in the country. There was a time when there were many other black-owned radio stations. The FCC changes the rules, and all the Negroes cashed out. And that's why there are only a few black-owned, black radio stations today, because the deal got so good for these black folk, and I ain't mad at them, but they made their own choices to sell many of these stations that they owned across the country. So now everybody's trying to get back in the game to own these media platforms so we can have... Um, ways to express ourselves so it happened with land it's happened in radio and other industries where black people just for whatever reasons end up cashing out and then years later we end up regretting that again he gave his answer but the the issue that you raised that i want to come back to now is how you read the fact that at whatever price they have decided to sell this prime real estate his answer was that they're going to take this money likely and buy some more land someplace else but how do you read the issue of the land dr malvo you know, I, as you say, they're not making any more land. Uh, we lost almost 90% of the land we had from 1900. And we have it, we lost it. Some people didn't pay their taxes. Some people sold it. But most of it was stolen. You know the story of my own family, Tavis, about the move in fence. Mm-hmm. You've heard how the fence moved. One night the fence moved. And it's because that the, the, this alley led into a bayou, which was a very fish-rich river. Mm-hmm. And we owned it. And white folks decided they wanted it. Now, we let white folks and anybody else fish on the land. We didn't want all the fish, but they just took it. Since moved. The solution eventually, years later, decades later, was that that alley is now called Hawkins Lane, which was my great-great-grandmother's name, Hawkins. But the land is gone. Mm. And this, this, I mean, this happened over and over and over again. I wish that the Bruce family had figured out a way to sell to a black consortium. Mm. I wish they figured out a way not to sell back to the city and county of L.A. because we know what's going to happen with that. But there, I, but this takes me back, Tavis, to um, 
a, a mutual dear friend, Susan Taylor, mm-hmm. and when Essence was sold, I, re- I remember very vividly her calling me early in the morning, and all the owners called their various friends and said, you know, you're going to hear this is going to be on the front page of the New York Times. We're selling Essence to Time Warner. Okay? Mm-hmm. And I, we had a heated conversation. Why are y'all doing that? Blah, blah, blah. At the end of the day, in a predatory capitalist system, people have a right to do whatever they want with their property. Mm-hmm. Uh, the issue was a question of collective consciousness, and there are two other related issues. When we go out to take it to the streets and say, we want you to support a black-owned business, and we many of us do that, does that black-owned business have the obligation to remain a black-owned business? Or uh, have they used our political capital to enrich them individual selves? I mean, I think this is a, it's a legitimate question to ponder. We don't, I don't have the answer, but I know it rankles when we've ad- advocated for, please do more advertising in these black magazines. And then the black magazine sells to a lot of people. And so, I, I mean, that's the Bruce, I, I, that's part of what I thought about when I thought about the Bruce speech. Is people have a right to do what they want to do with their property, but it was collective consciousness, not just that family, that yeah. allowed that transfer. I mean, mm-hmm. the governor of California was in on it. And this was seen as a nod, if not a genuflection, to black people into what happened in the context of reparations with the California Reparations Task Force. So they have a right to... Um, satisfy their individual needs and desires, but some of us have a right not to like it. Well, I hear your point. Uh, and uh, I remember that uh, that sell of essence vividly. As you know, they sold it in two parts. They sold uh, part of the magazine, part of the company rather, and then uh, some years later they sold the other part. And I remember being in some serious conversations myself with Clarence and Ed, as you know, the two brothers who founded Essence Magazine. Susan Taylor was the editor-in-chief, but Clarence and Ed were the founders of it, and I remember having conversations with them about why they would sell Essence to Time Warner, and they couldn't, I said, y'all couldn't find nobody black to sell Essence Magazine to, as fate would have it. Uh, Essence is, once again, owned by a black man. His name is Richard Lou Dennis. So Essence, these days, is, in fact, owned by a brother, but for a period of time, um, uh, it was owned by Time Warner, and I take the point that Dr. Malvo made uh, uh, to heart, um, that these individuals uh, in this predatory capitalist society, have a, they have agency to decide whether or not they want to sell something to the county or to Time Warner or any, anybody else. Um, but it does make it hard to run this narrative of black-owned, 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 and supporting black-owned, 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 if the black people who own it, end up selling it to other people. So I, I hear a point. I'll put a pin in that for the time being. When we come forward, I want to come back to this broader question of reparations and what the Bruce's story tells us about reparations uh, and how this is going to be viewed around the country. When Bruce's Beach was successfully returned, thanks to George Father III's efforts, uh, when it was returned to the Bruce family, there were all kinds of cases around the country that came out. I recall the New York Times, Dr. Malvo, did a huge story about all these other persons and places around the country who were telling their Bruce's Beat story. And all these lawyers and law firms that got involved in these cases that are in courts right now, um, in litigation right now, trying to get folk their land back, including in Palm Springs, where Eva Martin is working on that particular case. So there, there's some implications, I think, for... Uh, the Bruce family selling this land back to L.A. County. We'll talk about those implications when we come forward with Dr. Julianne Malvo on KBLA Talk 1580. Conversations that matter. matter. You're listening to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. Dr. Julianne Malvo, because you brilliantly connected um, this Bruce's Beach issue to the broader conversation about reparations, um, what what's your read on what 
this U-turn, as it were, in this particular case, and again, uh, as George made uh, George Fowler the third, the attorney for the family made clear in our conversation, this provision was always there. When they, uh, they when I say they, the county returned the land to the family, um, this provision was always there that they had the right to turn around and sell it back to the county if they so chose. And that twenty million dollar figure was assessed. Uh, or agreed to based upon the present day value of the land. Again, that's where the $20 million number came from. But to your point, uh, the governor of this state, Gavin Newsom and others, used this as an example of reparations. And so now uh, that example doesn't really exist in the way that it used to. So what do you think this decision to sell the land uh, back to the county um, does for the broader conversation or does to the broader conversation about reparations and the way it ought to be done in this country? Well, actually, Tyrus, I don't think it does a lot. I think that um, many, many cynics and, the, you know, the melanin deficient, melanin deficient cynics mm-hmm. are going to say, see, they were just trying to make money. They weren't trying to get reparations. Mm-hmm. Well, reparations is money. Um, but the fact is they have a right to do what they want to do with their property. These other lawsuits are going to go forward. The fact that the property was transferred is what's significant, not the fact that it's transferred back. I think that, you know, I'm working with Arriva on the Palm Springs case. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, again, this is like people bulldoze out of their property. So we see these cases all over the country. I don't think that this is a hurt to the movement, but I do think that it is a blow to black people. Mm. I mean, I, I think the movement itself will survive. Sheila Jackson Lee will continue to introduce H.R. 40. Uh, President Biden this week is running around talking about the Emancipation Proclamation, but he will not do an executive order for H.R. 40, which he can do, Mm -hmm. because we know that this Congress being sworn in as we speak uh, is not going to pass H.R. 40. So there's still things that can be done. So I I would not see it as a blow, but I would say it as an experience. It's an experience, and it is a U-turn. But but it does not change the argument, the validity for reparations. Two questions right quick, given what you just said. Number one, um, why, to your mind, won't President Biden sign an executive order, which he could do on this issue of uh, uh, establishing this reparations commission? He, I, I think that President Biden is racially ambivalent. I think that he, is, does it, he doesn't want to make enemies. And especially not now. He should have done it when we asked him to do it at the beginning of uh, his term or even into last year. But now we're in his third year, and if he's running for re-election, he does not want to inflame the right-wingers. I, 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 it's just that simple. Mm-hmm. But he could easily do it. I think he I think has some ambivalence on his part, and I think that his advisors are extraordinarily cautious. Okay. Finally, uh, on this particular point, um, when you said a moment ago that you see this U-turn in the Bruce's Beach case uh, as a blow to black people, not to the reparations movement writ large, but a blow to black people. Unpack it for me right quick. I think that there's a lot of pride that happened when the Bruce family got that beach back. There's a lot of pride. Where's that pride going to go now? There was something that uh, people could tell their young people, look, that family, they fought for their stuff. So I think that that's the blow. Is You know, Tavis, our greatest strength is our resilience. The fact that we don't stop fighting. Mm-hmm. So selling the land back seems to me almost like a capitulation. And if you could take your child to Bruce's Beach and say, this is black people land, and they fought to get it back after it was stolen. Can't do that anymore. Our remaining moments with Dr. Julianne Malveaux when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Interrogating your assumptions. And expanding your inventory.
laboratory of ideas. Let's get back to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. So, Dr. Malvo, let me close with uh, a couple questions about reparations. Broadly speaking, I was in conversation, at least on email, uh, yesterday with our mutual friend, Dr. Ron Daniels, about the big reparations uh, conference uh, coming up later this year, of which you, at which, of course, you'll be featured and uh, appearing and speaking. Um, um, you mentioned Sheila Jackson Lee. You mentioned uh, Joe Biden. And we've been talking, of course, in this hour about Bruce's Beach as a good example of how reparations ought to work. Um, give us an update on where we are, you think, broadly speaking, vis-a-vis reparations. You, you established earlier that Joe Biden is not going to sign this executive order, uh, it appears. Uh, but we're in a new year, uh, but the fight, the struggle continues. What's your sense of where reparations is headed or not in 2023? Well, as you know, Dr. Daniels convened NARC, the National African-American Reparations Commission, which I serve. We continue to be active, and this young sister in Evanston, Illinois, Robin Ruth Simmons, has done the first legislation on local reparations. We now have over 20 cities who are looking into local reparations. You have the California um, Reparations Commission. So, you know, it's very interesting. You, you and I, were both activists. The question is this. Change happen from the top down or from the bottom up. Mm-hmm. So will will local reparations impel national reparations? And that's a conversation. It's ironic. I got off a call with Dr. Daniels to jump on with you. <laughs> uh, but anyway, and this is part of the conversation. What you know? Where do we go from here? We keep fighting. Resilience is, as you know, it's the backbone for black people. Yeah. We can't tell. Gee, I'm tired of marching. I'm giving up. No. What we do is we continue to push this point. And so. Brother Biden may not sign this executive order. He has other fish to fry, but we just need to stay on him. And Vice President Harris needs to become an ally of the reparations movement. Ironically, all these presidential candidates in 2020 stood up on stage talking about they supported reparations. Remember? Mm-hmm. All of them. Not, mm-hmm. Well, not every single one of them. But Pete Buttigieg, they all, oh, yes, um, little odd lady Marianne uh, Williamson, they all said they supported reparations, including elected officials. Where's their support now? So we have to just continue to light fires under them, and the reparations advocates are equal to the task. I, I, I hear a tacit, and maybe even tacit isn't the right word. It wasn't that tacit. It wasn't subtle. It wasn't tacit or subtle. I heard your critique of Kamala Harris. Um, what is the vice president not doing on this issue that she ought to be doing? Pushing for that executive order, speaking up about reparations. She talked about it during her campaign. I mean, I love Kamala. I'm very proud of her. I think she's great. I remember her when she was an activist in San Francisco in the DA's office, all that. So no, no shade, no shade, no shade. Just sister, embrace us. We need your help. Here's the exit question with 45 seconds to go. Why do you think that reparations is catching on locally? It's kind of like the fight for 15. It catches on locally, but not nationally uh, in the way that it ought to have uh, or ought, period. Uh, but why, why do you think local is leading on this reparations issue? People are able to, locally, people are able to show what public policy did to affect their economic status. They're looking at it in San Francisco. They're looking at it, you know, in, in uh, Evanston, Illinois, Asheville, North Carolina. We know that we were redlined out of opportunities, redlined out of jobs. Um, our tax dollars used not to benefit us, but to benefit other people. I mean, we ought to get some reparations from the University of California, frankly, uh, because how do we have policies that prevent black and brown kids from going to UC Berkeley, uh, UCLA, but our tax dollars support those institutions? Yeah. I want to thank uh, Dr. Julianne Malveaux and uh, Attorney George Fosby III for a great hour 
uh, talking about these new developments, this U-turn, as it were, in the Bruce's Beach case. I thank them both. Dr. Malfoy, have a great, uh, a great year. Get back home safely, and we'll talk to you soon. Absolutely. Take care. Speaking of the new year, now for the next two hours, we're going to get you motivated and get you ready for the year. We're going to start with George Fraser. Then we'll go to Layla Delia, and we'll wrap today's show in a conversation with uh, the motivator, Les Brown. We're going to take you higher for the next two years, for the next uh, for the next two hours in this year when we come forward after news, traffic, and sports on KBLA Talk 1580.